are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for a cover-to-cover open book. Welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. Today we honor Native history by bringing you a documentary on the Mohawk ironworkers. For over a hundred years, the Mohawks of Ashkenazi, a reservation on the New York-Canadian border, pursued the occupation of ironworkers, one of the most dangerous jobs in construction. Stay with us as we bring you an honest, intimate, and informative portrait of an unusual occupation and the Native Americans who made it their own. Home. A place of one's dwelling or nurturing with the conditions, circumstances, and feelings which attach to it. Hey, nothing I can't climb, you know. When we were kids, we used to climb trees. I mean, let's go to the highest, you know. Let's go to the top. It's pretty exciting. It is really exciting, too. You hang that right off the side of the beam. One little mistake, and that's it. Bend over quick and kiss your ass goodbye, you know. Yeah. Cars are just like little, little things. Like a like a little ant. You're in your own world, you know. You're, you're in a different world, like, you know, to me. Mike Edwards has eight kids a new house, and an unobstructed view of the river from his picture window on the Aquasasne Indian Reserve. But the world he is talking about, the aerial world of iron workers erecting skyscrapers and bridges, is as familiar to the men of this Mohawk tribe as the land straddling New York and Canada on the banks of the St. Lawrence River, where their families have lived for generations. A building is always swaying. Huh? It's always moving. It's... To me, it's almost like a live one. Huh? It's a live. Girders, some of them are just, you know, just bolted on with two bolts and three bolts, four bolts, you know. But they're also flimsy, you know. Sometimes they're yeah. just as wide as your foot, yeah. you know. It's I mean, like walking on a rubber band. It's like walking on a rubber band. Charlie, Mike's younger brother, demonstrates how to walk a four-inch wide girder hundreds of feet above the ground. The high steps are reminiscent of the footwork of Indian dancers. It's twisting and turning as, you, as you're walking on it. You got a lot of weight, a lot of weight on your belt, all your tools. That's about 200 pounds over, over your own weight, too. One time, I was on a 1,000-foot guide tower. We're in Detroit. See, the wind up that high will, will go around like in a big circle. Say the wind's blowing 40 miles an hour up there. So I was walking across this catwalk, plus I'm carrying this big hoist. Huh? And next thing I know, like I'm fighting against the wind, the next thing I know, the wind would come right on my back you know, and push me right across. And I'm almost running across now, right? <laughs> Mike.
Mike's straight black hair hangs down his back in a modern version of the scalp lock. In the ancient Mohawk nation, both sides of the head were shaved, leaving a strip of hair down the middle and a long hanging tail. By grabbing this tail, an enemy could more easily rip off your scalp. The scalp lock was a dare, a warrior's cool act of defiance. My father, I made his net for him all winter. He says to me, "Okay, guys, stay home from school. You gotta. It's your turn to sell the fish." And I go with my bike and tell them, if they let me go for Friday, I'll bring them some fish. <laughs> and the nuns would say, "Yes, yes, do it. Go get the fish." Catherine Edwards is Mike and Charlie's mother. By the time she was grown, chemical pollution from three aluminum plants had poisoned the fish, wiped out wildlife, and ended the tradition she remembers so fondly. But her father's main career was ironwork, the risky occupation Mohawks call skywalking. He would get sick of ironwork sometimes. His friend, friend that he rode with, got killed. Father, uncles, brothers, husband. Almost every man she knew was an iron worker. I adored my man. Them days, huh?、Mm. I thought he was nothing but a god. And you know, when he came home, I did everything in my power to please him. I even ironed his、uh, iron worker's clothes, which you didn't have to iron because they got filthy. <laughs>、uh-huh. Seemed like to me the way we used to ride around in their beautiful cars. There was nobody. Better than us, huh? Nobody in this world better than us. While the men in her family were erecting the modern skyline, Catherine was drawing water, bucket by bucket, from a well. Into the 70s, there were traditionalists who objected to the introduction of tap water on the reservation. How did a people so attached to the past become so linked to the shape of the future? Is there a connection between the two? They will walk over deep brooks and creeks on the smallest poles, and that's without any fear or concern. Nay, an Indian will walk on the ridge of a barn or house and look down at the gable end and spit upon the ground, as unconcerned as if he were walking on terra firma. John Lawson, 1709. Almost two centuries later, in 1886, the Canadians were planning a railroad bridge across the St. Lawrence River, seeking permission to build on Caughnawaga. A Mohawk reservation not far from here. They promised the Indians jobs in return. An official of the Dominion Bridge Company described the result. It was our understanding that we would employ these Indians as ordinary day laborers unloading materials. They were dissatisfied with this arrangement and would come out onto the bridge itself every chance they got. It was quite impossible to keep them off. They would walk a narrow beam high up in the air with nothing below them but the river, which is rough there and ugly to look down on. And it wouldn't mean any more to them than walking on the solid ground. They seemed immune to the noise of the riveting, which is often enough in itself. 
to make newcomers feel sick and dizzy. They were continually bothering our foreman to be allowed to take a crack at it. This happens to be the most dangerous work in all construction and the highest paid. Men who want to do it are rare, and men who can do it are even rarer. So we picked out some and gave them a little training. And it turned out that putting riveting tools in their hands was like putting ham with eggs. Rivets are no longer used, but Jack Doyle, a union official at Iron Workers Local 40, remembers riveting gangs. Three men on a plank scaffold aptly called a float, hung by ropes from the steel they're working on, and a fourth man, the heater, on a separate platform. High in the skeleton of a New York skyscraper, the rookie ironworker watched an extraordinary sight. The first thing I noticed was the, the heater, the guy that had a Ford set up, much the same thing that you would see a blacksmith setting up. And he would put the rivets into the hot coals and heat the rivets until they turned white. Then he would take a rivet out with a pair of tongs. He would take that rivet and toss it. And the guy, one of the guys standing on the, on the float would have a metal can. And that's what he would catch to rivet in. 80-year-old Charlie Terrance is a Mohawk who remembers what it was like to be on that unique pitcher's mound. When they got up to the uh, roof section, I was missing a lot of rivets throwing up there. Whereas this other gang from Cleveland... They had some guy there, I'm telling you, he could whip them rivets right up there just like nothing. And I said, boys, either you move me up on a roof where I can uh, throw these things horizontally to you. Or, I said, we're going to get fired. Now, how far will a good heater be tossing those rivets? Oh, I would say he could toss it 150 feet. The man who caught the mushroom-shaped rivet would take it out of the can with tongs and stick it into the next hole in the steel. The second man, the bucker up, braced the rivet, and the riveter, on the other side of the steel, drove his pneumatic hammer against the projecting stem end, still hot and malleable, until it too mushroomed and clamped the steel together. The three men on the float had just enough room to work. When all the holes they could reach were done, the scaffold was moved. But now, they got so far away from me that they had to move me up closer to them. And uh, the guys had prepared another uh, a platform for me up ahead. I wasn't about to walk those narrow beams up there. They weren't finished yet to the point where you got out on them. In a 20-foot span, they started wiggling on you. But this boy, I'm telling you, he put it on the shoulder, still with the rivets in there and the fire in there and whatnot, put it on the shoulder. And he walked those steel beams, which were only four inches wide. He was carrying the forge on his shoulder. When the Canadian Railroad Bridge was completed, the Mohawks turned their next jobs into training schools, bringing apprentices with them from Cognawaga. As soon as one knew the ropes, another was sent to take his place. By 1907, there were 110 iron workers on the reservation. It was a fateful year. 
On August 29th, the unfinished Quebec Bridge collapsed, killing 96 men, 35 of whom were Mohawks. A patriarch of the tribe, quoted in The New Yorker in 1949, described the consequences of the disaster. People thought the disaster would scare the Indians away from High Steel for good. Instead of which, it made High Steel much more interesting to them. It made them take pride in themselves that they could do such dangerous work. That's what they wanted to do. Either that or work on the timber rafts. After the disaster, they all wanted to go into High Steel. By 1914, 90% of the men in the community were members of a steelworkers' union. The same phenomenon was taking place at Aquasosne. Other factors entered into it. Unemployment was high, and jobs that were available were low-paying. But there is no doubt that skywalking was becoming part of the culture, a badge of male pride like the scalplock of old. And the most legendary members of this highly skilled and nervy brotherhood were, and still are, the connectors. As always, the most dangerous part of the business is the raising gang erecting the steel skeleton. Until you get to that point, there is no floor. You're constantly standing on maybe a six-inch beam, a two-inch challenge, or whatever the case might be, or standing on a wrench that is just stuck into the side of the column you know, in a hole just to support your weight while the piece of steel is coming up, the next piece is coming up and it's just waving through the air and uh, he has to grab it, guide it into position, give all the signals to the engineer and uh, get the beam made fast with a bolt to the column. And only after that does, does he have some place to sit. <laughs> Other than that, he's just hanging on to the side of the column. Jack Doyle, like every veteran iron worker, Native American or not, has seen buddies maimed or killed. One of the, the, the most frightening and daring stories I ever heard was about a, a, an iron worker making a beam, as we call it, that's trying to get it into position to connect it. And uh, it was windy, and uh, he was standing on one flat, the bottom flange of the beam with his hands over the top flange. And uh, he lost his footing, and he slipped, and he ended up with nothing but his hands holding on to the bottom flange, and he's dangling out over 40 floors. He hung on, and the beam swung into the building twice. And when the, the beam swung in the second time, he got momentum enough in his legs, and he let go and landed inside the building on the floor. Mohawk communities sprang up in Brooklyn and Detroit and Buffalo near the sites of big construction projects, men sharing apartments and driving hundreds of miles to be with their families on weekends. Like Loran Thompson, boys as young as 14 started as apprentices on summer jobs. I was all excited. I was all excited. My father gave me uh, a pair of work shoes that uh, he wasn't using anymore. It was a little bit too small for me, but... Uh, I had to wear them anyway. I went to take my first step out on that piece, and for some reason, I felt like I was tied to the uh, lower building. My feet get uh, sticking to the iron, right? I couldn't take that step. <laughs> the way it used to be, you come home on a weekend, right? If you're a single man, you're going to go and party all, all weekend. Sunday night, 
You jump back in the car, you round up all your guys. You just get back to the job site, quarter to eight, and you go right back up on a steel. You haven't had any sleep, any good sleep. You work all week. Friday, you jump back in the car, and you rush home. You're eight hours on the road. Heck, Harrisburg and Maryland was a lot longer than that. That's uh, 14, 15 hours, 16 hours. We're going anywhere in over 100 miles an hour. Writer Gay Talese was doing a series of articles on the erection of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, the largest suspension span in America, when he took the ride from Brooklyn to the reservation in the early 60s. The Indians would uh, start tooting their horns as soon as they got to the area approaching the reservation and sometimes these cars would be very close to one another that is they went up almost in a, in a kind of caravan tooting the horns as they arrived and then little by little you'd see lights uh, in the windows of the homes and uh, and babies uh, crying and, and women coming to the windows and later on in robes coming to the doors and the men coming out of the cars and embracing on the sidewalk at one or two in the morning in that time, when you made 500 a week, you were a millionaire. They went through cars. I know my husband did. He, went, he must have went through 12 cars in one year. Breakfast, he'd make them. Sausage, pancakes, anything they wanted. He'd feed the kids, send them outside, and he'd fix the table for us. For just two. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. It was beautiful back then. Now that I remember. <laughs> What I noticed, they had a lot of plumbing that was unconnected. There was a lot of things that they bought, including tubs and toilets. They were still using outhouses. They were still uh, using ice boxes. There were refrigerators that weren't even connected to the wiring. They just didn't ever get around. It's almost as if they did the shopping, but there was no plumber in residence because I guess a plumber's job is not as lucrative as a job on a bridge. They were called boomers men who chased the building boom around the country in pursuit of high wages and excitement. One veteran foreman said Indians especially were attracted to life in the fast lane. Everything will be going along fine on a job. Good working conditions, plenty of overtime, a nice city. Then the news will come over the grapevine about some big new job opening up somewhere. It might be a thousand miles away. For a couple of days, they're tensed up and edgy. They look a little wild in the eyes. They've heard the call. Then, all of a sudden, they turn in their tools and they're gone. Can't wait another minute. They won't even wait for their pay. Some other gang will collect their money and hold it until the postcard comes back, tell them where to send it. Our native gangs themselves competed with one another to see who would get to the top first. And uh, you, you couldn't control the, the real competitive guys. They, they knew the shortcuts and they would take them. They shinny up them columns like, uh, like grease lightning. And they're half laughing at you that they beat you to it, see? And it was a game, like. The competition continued in the bars after work. Mohawks flexing what they call beer muscles. I knew this one guy, he was always raising game, raising, that's all he'd talk about after work, raising game, I'm the best, you know, ah, he says, you guys from St. Regis are just basket makers, he says, uh, you're overpaid laborers, you know, and so we ended up outside, 
and we start fighting. And I got him right down, and I went to hit him, and just as I was to connect, he moved, and I hit the sidewalk. Why, I just almost passed out, and I, I just come off of him, and I was holding my hand. He starts getting up, and he says, there, you can't even hit a man right. <laughs> <laughs> Here on the roof of a 28-story New York City skyscraper, the operator of a derrick can't see the load he's lifting. He's guided to the right spot by the voice on the walkie-talkie. Men's lives depend on the accuracy of these signals. They used to be made by the ringing of bells. The bellman's job was an art in itself. I know of one person who was working in New York City, a nice young lad who was so competitive, he went out there and cut the hook loose. And in the process, the signalman took the hook away and it caught in this boy's glove and he yanked him right off the steel. And of course, he got killed. You know, you know, there's a story that uh, Indians or Mohawks are, uh, uh, they have no fear and so on. That fear is always there. It's just that you have to do it. Our people travel from one end of the country to the other. And, and if one person made it to the top uh, from his reputation as being a very good man, that reputation carried on through his family, through, through relatives, through the rest of our people. They wanted to keep up that reputation so that their children, grandchildren, would have a job when it came their turn. Native Americans helped to build virtually every American symbol of the modern age. The Empire State Building, the Golden Gate Bridge, the World Trade Center. Few young men were able to resist the combination of high wages, adventure, prestige, and social pressure. I got into iron when I was about 19. Because my father was into it, and my brothers were into it, and I sort of got dragged into it, you know. You mean reluctantly? Yeah, I didn't really want to do it. My father always had dreams of his sons being, you know, connectors and all that. And being the man he is, everybody knows him, and he's, he's an ace connector and all this. It was hard for us to fill his shoes, you know. It was like we would go to a job, and they expected us to be like our fathers, huh? And it's hard to fill their shoes when they're top dogs, you know. <laughs> At 37, Clayton Jackson has three children of his own. A man with the build of a middleweight boxer, a reflective mind, and a lot of unhappy memories. I would hardly ever see my father, though, you know. And then when I did see him, he'd be sleeping, you know, getting rested up on the weekend, though. Well, everybody used to talk about him, and I said, geez, they, everybody knows him better than I do, <laughs> you know. Like, I was into sports and all this, and he never had time for me to, you know, go watch any hockey games or lacrosse games. I would hear stories about him, how good he was, and he would hear stories about me, too, how good I was in sports. And Now that he's retired, we're finally getting to know each other really good. Huh? Yeah. But now we're both grown, you know, I mean, we're both men now. So he missed the better part of my life, you know, I think. And I missed the better part of his because... He's old now, huh? He can't do those things that a father should do with his son, huh? 
Wives had to live with the heartbreak and infidelity of men who were never home. The men dealt with grueling travel, constant danger, and homesickness in their own way. You were heroes. And we celebrated like heroes, too. <laughs> it makes you um, cold inside, you know what I mean? You got to put your walls up so you don't get hurt. Like, you know you got to go away, you want to see your kids. and But deep inside, you're thinking about your family all the time. Because I know, because when we get home to the motels and you see all the guys, they have a few beers. Uh, and then next thing you know, they're on the telephone, uh, calling home, you know, talking to their kids and wives. And... But when you're around other men, uh, you're a man. For Harry Thompson, High Steel was a way to escape from nagging identity problems. I couldn't talk English when I went to school at all. And uh, I got a lot of trouble by uh, talking Indian because we weren't allowed to talk Indian in school. And my father was a traditional chief and he wouldn't allow English when we got home. That's why I wanted to be an iron worker to get away from it all. You know, on iron you don't really talk that much. You use a lot of hand signals. It seemed like when I talked, I got in trouble. And once again, welcome to the third annual Octojust Mohawk Wow on our Mother Earth. On this Labor Day weekend, the duality of Mohawk life comes into dramatic focus at the Akwesasne powwow. <laughs> Among the dancers are men in magnificent feather bonnets, men who wear hard hats during the week. Not as many as there used to be. For about five years, new skyscraper construction has been at a virtual standstill. The border slicing through Akwesasne creates more identity problems and certain opportunities. Young men found a new adventure, circumventing Canada's luxury taxes by transporting cigarettes and liquor upriver for resale at huge profits. When it comes to framing what the argument is about the, the so-called smuggling, it has to be re-examined under the light of Mohawk sovereignty. What's the difference? Say you were dealing with France, um, you would be moving the, the goods from country A to, to France to country B. Then there's no argument, but as soon as we talk about um, the Indian nations, we apply a whole new set of criteria. Uh, you, in fact, have three governments uh, coexisting to govern the people. That is imposed upon us. It's not by choice. Most Mohawks agree with Francis Jock. Clearly, this is an act of political defiance, too. A new version, you might say, of the scalp lock. Living with one foot in the modern world and one foot in the distant past may be even more of a balancing act than ironwork. But today is a day for celebration. In the town of Messina, 12 miles from the reservation, the Mohawk contingent is getting ready to march in the Labor Day Parade. Tonight, Dick Odo will drive eight hours to New York City and don his hard hat in the morning. Ask him why he stays in ironwork and the answer comes like lightning. I love it. It's been in my blood for all these years and just a tradition. Old timers remember when a building went up 15 or 20 stories without the decking or nets that are required now. But construction still accounts for more on-the-job deaths than any other occupation. 
Dick Odo knows those dangers firsthand. From hitting me in the face, I don't remember much after. I fell like 40 feet and onto the street. And I was just lucky there. I didn't break no bones. Just uh, the bones in my face were shattered from the, from the piece of iron that hit me. Two months in the hospital and after all the surgeries they had, I got a one bad eye out of it. It, it more or less boosted my ego to get up there more and give it a better try. Their names aren't on the skyscrapers and bridges that stretch across America. But there comes a moment when every iron worker knows his own worth. In New York, we topped out one of the biggest bridges I ever worked on. I was there for three years, the Henry Hudson Bridge. And it was just great. It was what a feeling to see the press there and having the last girder go up and people were cheering you on and you know you just got goosebumps like I'm getting out talking about it and it was just a thrill just to say I've done this I built this and being standing up there proud with the flag and your buddies around your arms and giving a thumbs up for the iron workers The Skywalkers of Aquasosny was mixed by Rick Rowe. Consulting editor, Donna Limerick. Excerpts from Mohawks in High Steel, courtesy of Joseph Mitchell and the New Yorker Magazine. Readings by Jonathan Schneider, Steve O'Connor, Charlie Terrance, and Bob Kelly. My name is Helen Borton.